ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time is here. That's right, we're talking about the 1973 classic, The Exorcist, believe it or not, on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, internet's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from the lovely bird we like to call Georgetown. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We're going to unpack all the goriest and grossest, if you were to believe anyone in 1973, uh, of the <laughs> details of The Exorcist and the hopes that a uh, a young priest's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at his expense. And as always, there's only one person I trust that if I wander into the room during a party and tell her on her way up to outer space, she's going to die up there. She won't hold it against me when I pee on the carpet. The one, the only, Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? Well, I thank you for uh, for not saying that I would uh, I would leave belligerent drunk in charge of your 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 <laughs> ailing child while you had to run out and get groceries. Someone just accusing any Swiss citizen of being a Nazi. Yeah, he's he's a joy and a delight. That one. yeah. Burke Dannings. <laughs> Burke Dannings. And then <laughs> again, uh, we're let's let's table let's put a pin in this just for a millisecond, only to say that we if you haven't watched The Exorcist, pl- please, for the love of God, go watch the Exorcist. What are you even doing with your life? Well that, that's that, that's <laughs> what that no, I'm 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 not gonna be charitable here. <laughs> I, I do think that I I'm I generally try not to be gatekeeping about such things but i do think that after a certain point there are certain movies that all harm fans should watch at some point you don't have to like them yeah but you should watch them and among those movies are halloween yes okay the thing sure the the 82 version yes yes okay psycho right and the, 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 the remake um, yeah, everyone is dressed like they're in the band blur right exactly <laughs> <laughs> where 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 you know they thought where gus van sant thought that uh you know the that the masturbation needed to be more than a little implied yeah you, you need to hear some skin on skin content whenever <laughs> you're breathing maybe some thunderclouds um <laughs> I will say it was worth it for him to just blow Universal's money to do it. Like it's an interesting experiment. I, I just it's just not a film. It is a, an interesting experiment. But please go on. And I was going to say, and and The Exorcist. Yeah, The Exorcist. Here's what I wonder about The Exorcist because occasionally you do come across people who do love horror who is like, you know, it doesn't work for me, and they kind of come into a couple different camps. And one is. I didn't grow up religious, so I didn't have an inherent fear of the devil necessarily to add to it. And that is something that was a hugely compelling factor at the at the year of its release. And um, I think that as time goes by and society has a trended away from organized religion on mass, um, that's going to be less of a, uh, of, of a deal. And I think it feeds a little bit into the second camp, which is most people are going to watch this film at home. And while last night I put in the Blu-ray copy that I happen to have in 
and I fired it up and I, this was like at 10:30 at night. I put Oliver to bed I watched something with Becky and said, I, I think I need to write some notes. I think I need to have it fresh in my head and uh, fired it up. And uh, usually I have all the lights off and I made it mm, five <laughs> minutes in before I had to turn on the light. Uh, again, I was once a child who was scared of the Pink Panther theme. So I am a notorious scaredy cat, but I can't watch it with the lights off. This movie uh, changes me on a biochemical level. 100%. I, I, again, I try not to gatekeep. I try not Mm -hmm. to tell anybody that their opinions on things are incorrect. Sure, But if you're going to look into my face, into my eyes, and tell me you don't think this movie is scary, I call bullshit. (laughs) I think you are not paying attention to it. Right. Or you're watching it under less than charitable circumstances. And I do think this is one of those things where the soundtrack of it really has a lot to do oh, yeah. with the unease you feel as it goes on just beyond the, you know, the theme <laughs> music that, that sparks up. Uh, there is a, a palpable uh, timber and hum to it that is just meant to slowly get its way under your skin. And I find it uh, just unnerving. The, the film is unnerving. Like, there's just so much not right about it. Like, before, like, even things really start, you know, you know going south, mm-hmm. just everything is just super unsettling. Yeah. Like the rat in the uh, attic, right? <laughs> it doesn't sound like a rat in, in an attic. It sounds like something is trying to crawl its way out of the floorboards a la Hellraiser, but with like claws. Yeah, it sounds like something is like banging and scratching against the floor. Yeah. And it's like no rat on earth has ever made that noise. And you know, it does something to me. And I think that in a huge situation where you were watching it in a theater and for those who might not be familiar exactly with how big of a deal the exorcist was, I would implore them to look up on YouTube cultural impact of the exorcist. This was a documentary made at the time of the film's release and it centers more than half of it on a local theater called the national theater in Westwood, California. This is by UCLA it's on the west side of town and people would wait in line between two and seven hours to get a ticket to this. There's no advanced sales. So already people are kind of exhausting themselves before they're even getting into the theater. The anticipation, the reputation of the film, hearing people on their way out talk about what it was and what it was like, and then seeing people captured on film just fucking collapsing oh people were like people were like vomiting and and running out of the theater and and claiming that they had like nervous breakdowns after watching it yeah and you know honestly i've seen this this movie a lot um it's probably one of my favorite horror movies And, and it seems weird to call it favorite because it is just so unpleasant at times and it's it's very bleak and there's you know there's 
pretty much not an ounce of humor to it. It's, it's, you know, just relentlessly dark, but I, I just think it's great. And, and, you know, but even watching it now, I'm thinking like, how in the fuck did they get away with this? It's, it's pretty, I mean, how they got away with it, it has everything to do with the director coming straight off of just grabbing the Oscars and getting everything he possibly could with the French connection. Just, just like, imagine, but, but just imagine today, you know, in the, in our, in our current climate. And I was actually, it's funny. I was just, I was recording um, the other project I work on white ladies in crisis the other night. We were doing an episode. We don't on- talk about our other projects. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. <laughs> We were talking about wild things. That was what our episode was about. The the <laughs> the 1998 extremely sleazy. Uh, so you guys thriller. are going to talk about successful erotic thrillers, yes. and we're going to relegate ourselves to very unsuccessful. Exactly, erotic exactly. There is there is the difference. But we, again, we got on this subject of you couldn't. You know, we, we say a lot. Oh well, you, you can't make that movie today. You say yeah. it about stuff like Blazing Saddles, which is definitely not true. You could very much make a movie like Blazing Saddles today because it's parodying racists. Yeah. But you, you're not going to have a movie like Wild Things where the the main character has a three-way with two high school students. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter that neither of the actresses playing the students look like they've seen the inside of a high school recently. Mm-hmm. It, it's just established that they are, in fact, in high school. Yeah, you're not doing that anymore. But imagine that that was 1998. Yeah. This was 1973. Yeah. And you've got a movie in which a little girl is forced to assault herself with a crucifix and then rubs her mother's face in it. And it's just like, I don't even. When you say it like that, it's almost like there's something wrong with this movie. Like, I don't even know how, I mean, I'm sure that there's all kinds of, you know, writings about, you know, freaking taking this to the studio and them showing it and like, you know, someone having a heart attack and say, yeah, you can't put that up there. And then they did. <laughs> and it's not, you know, for the benefit of you, who benefit of you folks who've only seen it on television, if you watch the uncut version, it does not look away. No. No, it does not. It's certainly much more graphic in its unedited form. It's only grown more so. Um, I'm not sure where one has access to the original theatrical version. I I don't have that. I don't know that I ever did. There are some things that I find are a little less than successful versus the original theatrical version. Like the Spire Walk is cool and everything. I think... It's all the spider walk is really dependent whether or not that shot of her opening her mouth and blood dripping out at the end of it, end of the shot. That to me is like, oh, that is super weird, super gross. Right. Uh, It's unnerving. I think the spider walk looks like someone being held up by wires. It's out of bed knobs of broomsticks. It's a little because it's also weirdly sped up. And I don't I don't know why it does that. But the interesting I think thing the is, mask how unna- do try to make it look unnatural, but it just ends up adding to the fake sort of artificial way that it goes about it because they couldn't really erase where the wires hook into the performer's hips, and it's just like why is her why why is her dre- night dress tenting at her hips? It just all of it points to the trickery. 
which is why it probably never should have been in there in the first place. Well, the interesting thing is that that is actually in the book. Yeah. Well, the vast majority of this is really transposed directly from the book. Yeah. It, 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 most of it, it's pretty dead on, uh, follows, follows the book. I mean, you get a little more with, uh, Burke, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is, which is regrettable, but, uh, he is sort of a, even though despite what happens to him, sort of really sets things in motion. That's who, you know, Chris McDeal understanding just how bad things really are. Mm-hmm. He's kind of an, an, an essential character overall. So you don't really need to spend as much time with him in the movie as you do in the book. Right. Uh, yeah. It, it's <laughs> the scene that kind of popped out at me this time is when Reagan is in bed and she's talking to her mom and she's like, you know, it's okay if you want to marry Burke. She's like, like, oh no, honey, honey. I think you uh misinterpret our relationship. <laughs> this is a person that I'm okay hanging out with, but I do not need to marry them. But thank you, anyways. It's like it's like Reagan, you are much too charitable. <laughs> is that I work for this person and I might not ever want to work from them for them again. I just want this work thing to happen smoothly enough that I'm hired for something else. What do you think the uh, plot of crash course is? (laughs) Well, obviously like she seems to be some sort of activist teacher. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you one thing. It's not any kind of movie William Friedkin would actually make. William Friedkin really wants to uh, take an audience by the lapels and shake them violently and smack them around a little bit. Um, and it's also like how he likes to treat his actors and anyone who is displaying his film. I, I believe the freaking is an absolute cinematic genius and also kind of a terrible person because of it. Not terrible. Like he needs to be banned from anything. He's just an infant terrible. This was just, you know, a thing you know, a lot of directors used to do it. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you've got, you know, you got the directors who will, you know, fire a gun to, to get the actors to, you know, you jump in the right way. And, Mm. and, you know, I I think it's sort of a weird kind of director's version of method acting. Right. Where they don't, they don't, they don't trust the actors to get the response that they, to to give them the response that they want. I mean, honestly, I, I, I do get a kick out of, because the, 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 the actor himself did not seem to be bitter about it in the long run about how he got the reaction out of the actor who played Father Dyer, who was not a professional actor. He was a, he was a priest. Yeah. And so he was supposed to be upset and shaken. And I guess because he was not a professional actor. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know why I'm setting this up. You know the story. He hits him. Yeah. Before he him straight it, across the face. Right. So he gets the, you know, the, you know, honestly, if I was an actor, I might be like, you know, just go, just haul off and hit me. <laughs> Cause I don't, I don't know if I can give you, I, I, I can kind of make myself cry yeah. if I need to, but I don't know if I could do it on command. So, mm. you know, just go ahead and slap me. I can take it. I, I think, you know, it's one thing to have permission to do so or to say, hey, I'm going to try something. And the the only goal of this is to get you to the place that you tell me you can't quite get to. And I think I can help you get there. Uh, is that okay? That I think it's fine. I think yanking back on a wire so that Ellen Burstyn um, slips a disc and cracks oh, her yeah, head yeah, along yeah. the, I mean, the very well-built yeah. set, that's shitty. Yeah, that that's inexcusable. That's the sort of behavior that I think is, you know, has been bred 
by uh, the auteur theory and I, I'm going to do everything I have to do to get you their attitude of, of 70s, uh, you know, directors in particular. And it's a bit of a myth. Like, it tells me that you are not inventive enough to get people to get to where you need them to be or trust them or work with them. You just want results. Or that you, yeah, you don't really know what, what the what the word directing means. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you want someone to have, you know, express a certain emotion, you sit down, you tell them what you want them to do. You don't just throw a box of spiders at them or something, to, <laughs> you know, to get them, you know, screaming and flailing. And it's very hard to find box of spiders anymore. Like they used to have it in big box stores. And of course your local hardware store would have box of spiders. But nowadays it's not like something you can get on Amazon. You (laughs) have to talk to a local spider collector who will individually craft a box of spiders for you. It's uh, you know, that's why you pay the premium because it's a lost art, but even still. Well, you know, you, you, to take it back to the spider walk and how you you said that unfortunately you can you can kind of you know, see the, see the magic behind the scenes as to how right, it works yeah. and it's it is it is one weak point in in the movie special effects which for the most part they still look pretty good like like oh my like god they look fucking amazing that, I mean that makeup is still on on Linda Blair is still phenomenal I mean she just looks she looks just diseased. How many times have we watched someone's head turn around in in the years and decades past The Exorcist? And no one has been able to do it better than here. With a mannequin where just the eyes move is somehow so much more realistic and believable than anything any computer has ever dreamt up or anything any other effects guy has been able to manage. It's just like... It fucking works, and I can't tell you why. I don't know why it looks as good as it does, other than the fact that there's a bit of magic going on here. It's just one of those things where you have the right people behind and in front of the camera, and they're making the right decisions, and they're just in the right pocket, and almost everything in the movie just fucking works. And Dick Smith, God rest his soul. It just absolutely is amazing in what he's able to accomplish in this film. And it wasn't without blood, sweat, and tears from the people who had to endure wearing it. Right. And and it's the blueprint for pretty much all satanic possession movies or demonic possession movies from that point forward. Right. You know, the the you know the the, the basically the person possessed being coming sort of, you know withered and sickly and looking like they've been you know smacked around by by you know the the you know she I mean she look I mean she looks like she's rotting. Yes. Absolutely. And her the body bends in unnatural ways. All that stuff is using language that happens here. And I do think it's kind of difficult. Like when we were talking the conjuring three, it's difficult. Like so much of that stuff was practical from people who could bend their bodies in that specific way. And this is taking nothing away from them, but we've seen it so many times that I find it amazing to watch a per the person in rehearsals, you know, bend their neck back and through their armpit. Like it's incredible that a human being is flexible enough to do that in the movie. It's kind of like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Just, 
it doesn't work as well as seeing someone in a, you know, a gym somewhere going on a mat going, this is what I'm going to do. Let's try it out. You know, all that you know, is fine. The, the visual effects, but, but would really, but, but you know, what really makes this movie work and you know, what really keeps you up at night after watching it is the sound design. Yes. 100%. And it's so simple and so like, it's just simple the way they did. They just threw together a bunch of animal noises and, and breathing and, and, you know, they're talking backwards. And, and of course you've got, um, you know, the stories of Mercedes, Mercedes McCambridge just smoking and you know, drinking a glass of like uh, raw eggs. So her voice is all like phlegmy and scratchy. And when she breathes in, she's all wheezing and, it's just it's awful it's so awful but so good at the same time yeah uh it should be noted the sound designer was steve bodiker who's kind of a legend in the industry uh not only in film but in other areas of sound and uh mike Min- minkler uh was the uh, sound mixer on this it, it's just over the years it because you know i think people who may have, may have seen this the first time on vhs like i did you're not, you weren't getting the full breadth of what this movie can actually do. And now, you know, having a, a smaller version of excellent sound design is, is relatively easy to accomplish uh, with modern technology. And you really begin to uh, hear and feel how this movie must have felt to audiences in 1973. Um, just, you know, looking back to that very quickly in that cultural impact documentary, there seemed to be two moments where people freaked the fuck out. One was Mercedes McEmbridge and her voice seemed to freak people out. And the second is the scene of the spinal tap, which is what freaks me the fuck out. Oh yeah. And when you watch the director's cut, uh, or whatever they, the, what they marketed as the version you've never seen, which was released mm-hmm. in a theater some years ago. Yeah. All that medical shit is there's a lot more of that. I feel like it touches on one of the elements that I, you don't hear as much uh, with the exorcist because most people sort of focus on the actual exorcism and possession element of it. But I think one of the more unnerving elements of it for me now that I am a father is family trauma. You have two people at the center of this motion picture who, Karis and Chris, who have family situations that are out of their control. Karis's mother, her, she's grown too old. She, he lives too far away. He doesn't make enough money to have someone looked after her full time. And she dies while he's off doing his job. And that involves having faith in a God who's allowing this to happen. Cut that with Chris, whose daughter is going through ailments. Everyone tells her not to worry about. There's a simple, rational explanation for this. All we have to do is kind of torture her for another week and try a new medication, a new test, a new way that you can see she's reacting badly to and uh, you can feel her crumble all the confidence that she exudes as a woman who is a single mom who's working who's a movie star you know she's got a lot of things going for her but 
the idea that she cannot help her own child in this situation. And and she's, she's and she's alone in the situation because yeah. Reagan's father is out of the picture. He doesn't even bother calling her on her birthday. On her fucking birthday. <laughs> Just wow. It was, the, the guy who he is not being uh treated uh, <laughs> very kindly, nor should he in this motion picture. That dude's a real asshole. It's like, oh, I'm off in Rome. I don't I, I'm away from the situation. I don't have to deal with you and your 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 issues lady and it's kind of like you have a daughter together asshole maybe you should call her on her fucking birthday maybe you should get involved i think he's like burke dennings 1.0 it might <laughs> doesn't he come off like oh this is like an et someone who goes off to mexico with his mistress and she's just left at the kitchen sink going mexico he doesn't even like mexico <laughs> to which if i remember correctly the first time we watched it with oliver he said oh she needs help she, <laughs> she needs help why, why won't anyone help her i would you could say you could say the same about chris mcneil why won't anyone help yes. her <laughs> why doesn't anyone help her and she has a lot of help but everyone is frozen by a situation that is just outside of the scope of anyone's imagination. It, and, 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 let's, and, and let's face it. I mean, really, these doctors are just too busy chain smoking to help her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't get I, I One of my favorite things about watching movies in the 70s is just how much everybody is smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that it's this kind of like, do you have a, a cigarette? I happen to have smoked all of my cigarettes at uh, 1 p.m. today. So it's like, do you, do you mind if I smoke? Sure, brain surgeon, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I love, have you ever seen the movie um, uh, All That Jazz? It's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, one of my favorite scenes is when he is, he's getting his uh, his physical to, to get so he can get insurance on his show. <laughs> and, and the doctor is like overweight. He's like just puffing away and wheezing and coughing. He's like trying to sign off on the paperwork. And he's like coughing so hard. He's like kind of like waving. Like, yeah, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> Like everybody has just got a butt in their mouth. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I think all that jazz was the first time I I witnessed somebody smoking to the point where they reached the end of one cigarette and they lit the next cigarette off of that one. <laughs> smoking in the shower. Right, you're, you're just going. You're going nonstop. You're going butt to butt on that, and I'm like, wow, people fucking smoke. Man. And apparently, he really did smoke that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like I, I read a book about. I'm sorry. Did you say five pack a day? Habit? Oh, Jesus Christ! It's a miracle he lived as long as he did. <laughs> right? <laughs> like actively working in a coal mine while dancing. That's what he was <laughs> doing with his own body. Oh my god! Yeah, the doctors are smoking. The priests are smoking. Everybody's smoking in this. Um, to go back a little bit when you said. How did this even happen? I think one of the compelling factors in how this happened uh, in getting the exorcist to the screen in 1973 goes back to 1968 when you have the the back-to-back successes of Night of the Living Dead, which is an independent feature, and then Rosemary's Baby, which is a paramount picture. And that ends up you know, getting Oscar nominations and as a smash hit. And it was a huge book. 
And at this time, you have that growing group of of horror novels be starting to take over in in like it's an airport novel. It's a paperback. They just like live, live, live. Like there's a triumvirate that seemed to every book of the time seems to quote, you know, if you loved Rosemary's baby, the exorcist and the other, like those three things were such huge hits in the publishing world that they were more willing to take a chance on something. Like if that many people have read the book of the exorcist, how many more people will show up to a movie, which is a lot easier to digest. So I think from that standpoint, they thought, Okay, and you've got a director who has a lot of cachet. Now, speaking of the book, I read it years ago. Is is have you read The Exorcist? You know, lately. Well, I actually just I I watched this a couple of weeks ago. Actually, um, I I brought it up to you afterwards because I just got you know a, a, a notion to watch it. Sometimes mm-hmm. I just do. Sometimes I just have those those. You know, those horror movies in your cachet where you're just like, I think I'll watch that tonight. Just for yeah. the hell of it. Yeah. And so I, I had read the book before and then I purchased it again recently. So I've kind of been like like skimming through it. But uh, yeah, it, like as we mentioned earlier, it does pretty much follow the book uh, very closely. Mm-hmm. Certain scenes are uh, a little dragged out let's say um sure. like the the scene we were uh we were mentioning earlier is a little worse in the book uh-huh. as it uh-huh. turns out william peter blatty a former uh comedy writer this uh novel success and the film success killed his comedy career i i can totally understand that <laughs> um he has a belief and so does billy friedkin and even linda blair when they've done interviews on the subject uh, william peter blatty past a couple of years back but in interviews they are often saying this isn't a horror movie well um, mm, <laughs> they can think they can think that phenomenon. they can think that if they want to but yeah like <laughs> you know nothing's going to take that away from that i i feel like that that is sort of in the same vein as people using and we spoken about this ranted whatever you want to call it at length before um mm-hmm. The use of the phrase elevated horror. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It Which is, means like serious people are involved. Right. It's what people do when they, they don't want their, their, you know, the movie they're working on to, to be minimized in some way. Now I get yeah. that because horror in the seventies was not, he was still incredibly popular and, and a moneymaker for, for uh for hollywood but it was still you know both in both in film and in print was still considered a, a lesser a, you know a, a lesser art form it, it's a it's a b movie it's a programmer it's something you put in a double feature uh for kids in the afternoon you right know, there while there was the occasional serious horror movie and really from their standpoint of what a horror movie was pre the exorcist they're right it's not a horror movie in the sense that every other, so, you know, quote unquote horror film up until that point had been things like Edgar Allan Poe adaptations or giant monsters or, you know, uh, you know, creatures from beyond space. Those were horror pictures. You know, the mummy shambles in and, you know, you can walk faster than the mummy. 
I understand that The Exorcist is different from a quote-unquote horror movie, but it is, again, one of those films that sort of fits in that 1968 to 1980 window in which the definition of a horror movie is totally in flux. But it also, but it also became its own genre of horror movies. Exactly. Yeah. Every every you know, demonic possession movie from from that point up till now owes an incredibly large debt to The Exorcist. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Return of the Living Dead. How much every zombie movie, you know, tilts towards the Return of the Living Dead's definition of what a zombie is. When you redefine the definition, you know, and you see that a lot of people come to that that original film um, or that that breakaway point after seeing the more derivative reference points to it. And so it might not have the same impact because in pop culture, we've seen this in everything from, you know, car insurance commercials to uh, comedies to television series you know it's been done it's been done it's been done some people do it very well some people not so much but it it all comes back to this one point there there are no deviations from that that don't owe a massive debt to the origin point and so i wonder if you know newer people to the exorcist are kind of like well i don't you know i've seen this but people in 1973 hadn't fucking seen it. Right, exactly. I think that I probably would have watched this one of the first times it was on television. Mm-hmm. You know, which means I didn't I didn't even get the full effect at the time. Sure. You know, and it was still, you know, because I was probably like, I don't know, nine or ten maybe. And then, you know, again, as I've established multiple times, not really supervised as to what I watched on television. So I... I I watched this, was freaked the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it again some years later. And I'm like, oh, wow, boy, did I miss a lot. <laughs> and then I saw it again when they did the uh, the the version you haven't seen where they have, they, they decided, let's take this one step further. Let's add some subliminal imagery because, right. because we're not fucking with this audience enough. <laughs> The subliminal imagery, I think, is the was the when I after I first saw it, the thing that fucked with me the most. The the dream that Karis has. Oh, that's uh, it, to me the, that dream. That's the scariest part of the whole movie to me. That that's because yeah. it it looks so. A lot of dream sequences in movies don't really look like to me at least what a what a dream seems like and feels like. This mm-hmm. just this just has it down perfectly. Because the rhythms don't work, it's not operating on uh, reality. It's it's not even montage. It's it's something that is just out of your control. And you know there are those people who can manipulate their dreams. I'm not one of them. But this pretty much feels like a nightmare you can't control. And the subliminal image of Captain Howdy in the middle of that is something that. Yeah, has wormed its way into my brain. Like, have you ever seen when that? I close uh, my eyes. That's what I see. Have you ever seen the um one of the the, the unused uh, trailers that they that they that they created that was just that like like yeah. kind of like like a strobe light? I'm like, you're mm-hmm. gonna kill people with this thing. <laughs> Honestly, yes. 
I, you know, I think part of my brain had put that in a file that I couldn't access in the hopes that I wouldn't think about it. But now it's right up there at the top, Gina. Thank you. I'm sorry. So much. Well, I'm thinking uh, about it too. So yeah, we're in this together. Where can people find you on this here internet? So I'm going to go gonna into a corner and uh, curl up in a ball. Sit quietly for a little while. <laughs> just going to try to drink away the pain in the hopes that I just numb everything when, north of my neck. I'll, I'll be, I'll never be, think about that. I'll be you know, wondering if God will forgive me for my sins. <laughs> and then you can find me on Twitter under Porson72. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is this is why you now. Okay, I am going to say I don't really know much about Mormonism's view of the devil. I don't Mm -hmm. know if y'all have a devil or some form of the devil, but I was raised in the Catholic faith, and we are intimately acquainted with the devil. (laughs) The devil's got a capital D over there. Yes. Yes. So um, yeah, this is this hits different as the kids sure. say. If you like, much like Saint Maud, which we which we reviewed earlier this we talked about earlier this year, it won't hit you as hard it hit you as hard if you have not been marinated in some kind of religion at some point in your life. But I do believe it is of the same. I don't know because I would also kind of put us in that category of a film that I think about a lot. I, in the, in the months after we watched St. Maud, which is available if you're on our Patreon feed and that episode is as well worth it as is uh, the majority of that we put on there. Um, that, that movie haunts me. Like I think about it a lot. It just has wormed its way into my brain case and it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but it, but there are so many movies that don't make you think, and there's nothing wrong with it, but ones that you can't, that refuse to let go, that claw into the crevices of your brain. Um, and just, you, you, you have a hard time separating yourself from them because they affect you that much. That is hard to do. And the exorcist absolutely accomplishes that despite some goofier than you might remember moments like the Virgin Mary who apparently has been modified to look like something Tim Burton put together in his garage. I actually thought thought it was like something you see in a John Waters movie. (laughs) It's not. I mean, it looks like teenagers have done it. It, it, Is this? (laughs) Well, again, that actually, that actually is in the book because there's a whole like, you know, Vladdy did his homework on, on, satanic worship and and people calling up the devil and and you know sort of rituals that were cast and part of this was you know de, you know defiling statue statues of saints and the blessed mother so it's it's just odd though because it's just this, you know weird throwaway shot that's like nothing really ever comes about it but that's it kind of goes more into it in the book i think putting the the batman's the joker head on a saint statue. That's more, that's far three. more unsettling. That That's yeah. more unsettling. It still looks silly, but it's like, but also this is kind of creepy. Yeah, very much so. Well, I, I often play the movie while we're talking about it, just in case I see something I want to discuss. And just one of those fucking flashes came up while they're drawing blood. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. It's relentless. Oh, 
it hurts my brain. Well, it's it's just, um, it's a movie that you know, a lot of horror movies you can you come away if you come away with one image that you you will retain in your in your your you know memory palace. That's mm-hmm. pretty good, but there's a lot in this. You yes. know, you you've got the uh, you've got Father Marin's sort of facing the 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 dog statue, which is actually supposed mm-hmm. to be Pazuzu, where you've got that, you know, while you, you've got that really just sort of uh, uh, discordant sound playing on the soundtrack that sort of sounds like, you know, voices humming, but also might be, you know, locusts, but there's also you know, animals growling at each other. And it's just the earth tearing itself apart. Yeah, it just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And then it cuts out. And then and you- It's and then, so relentless. Yeah, and when it disappears, you're like, Oh, oh, thank God. And then the horror movie starts. Right. And then you've got, you've got, uh, you've got Reagan levitating. You've got Reagan sort of like in this almost like worshipful pose on her knees. And, and, you know, and, and again, you've got the, 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 you know, the, the, the backlight behind her. And then you've got Father Kara sort of rising up with like the, you know, demonic possession eyes, which is, you know, again, that's so cliche at this point. You know, that when you get possessed by the devil, you get funky eyes. And, and, right. but I, I don't think that that had been done until, until this. I mean, yeah. in, in Rosemary's Baby, there was a brief glimpse of you. Know, it was supposed to be presumably, you know, a close up of the devil's eyes. He sort of had the, the, the yellow eyes, but he mm-hmm. also didn't look human. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, he looks normal except for the weird eyes. And it is, it's just so, because he, he just looks tormented and, and frightened and, you know, full of rage. And it's just, it's, it's such a, you know, huge burn into the brain moment. The movie vacillates so much between the documentary style where the camera just happens to be around. It doesn't feel super staged. There's not a lot of showy moments. And then there'll be times where it's definitely manipulating you. There's a sequence in which uh, Detective Ketterman, or Lieutenant, I, I don't know which way you go, but he's the guy who will eventually be played by George C. Scott in, in the third film. And he's talking with Chris because in his mind, he he's, has a gut feeling that that Burke was tossed from the window before he rolled down all those stairs that he might have been killed before he fell down the stairs. And the, the camera push slowly as they're talking at the kitchen table pushes in from both sides. So that even when in coverage, it flips over to the other person's shoulder, the camera is still pushing in. The pressure is still on. It's still building. There's no way out. There's no escape. She's trapped. Her daughter is obviously not in a place where she ever wants the police involved in this death because uh, the person upstairs who used to be my daughter now claims to be Satan. So this is not a good thing. Like she's already under pressure. Just try to give her daughter relief. And you can like, there's so much added to it. That is an artificial thing they're doing with that camera. That is very purposeful. Yet there are other moments that just feel like, so he ran outside with a camera and said, all right, look, look, you just walk towards me and maybe the train will come by. There's, it's both ends of it. You, you feel the verisimilitude, the reality of the situation. And then this unreality is built on top of it in such a way that 
you begin to believe it. Right. Exactly. Whereas, you know, in Rosemary's Baby, when they look in the crib, they have this Morticia Adams key light on those wolf eyes. <laughs> Every time I see and I burst out loud. Right. And I think that that is a, 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 a false step in an otherwise pretty flawless movie. You, you, yeah. don't, you don't need to show it. Just show her yeah. horrified reaction and leave it at that. Yes. Like all I'd ever seen previous to that was like stuff from, uh, you know, uh, cutscenes that they would put on television and something when she goes, it's eyes. What have you done to his eyes? And that is way scarier than seeing a doll with weird painted eyes on it <laughs> with a Morticia Adams key light. on it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm about to give a double entendre about sex and torture <laughs> because we are a horror movie character podcast i thought we because if we there's no plot to discuss here everyone knows the plot of the yeah if you haven't seen it you know what it's about yes but i thought we might give some examination to how these individual characters are built um so why don't we start with the first person we really meet uh hardcore and that is father Marin in the dateline iraq sequence um <laughs> Played, played, played by a uh, 46-year-old at the time, <laughs> Max von Sydow. May yeah, if you see him 70. without the makeup at the time, you're like, who the fuck is that hot dude? And they just made him old. And, and I'm pretty sure this was a, a most Americans' first introduction to him. Sure, yeah. I, as, as an I actor. Doubt very much they had been digging into the seventh seal. I'm sure they're... Some of the coastal elites have probably seen it. You like watch watch this and then watch Flash Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the same guy. Acting. Here, he imbues Marin with sort of every single frame is like, oh my God, that guy's going to die. He is exhausted. He's just hanging on by by a thread. It's like, who signed off with this guy flying to Iraq? I mean, Honestly, 1973, that had to take about, you know, you know, 37 hours to get there. <laughs> right, sure. You were, you were taking like multiple connection flights. Who, who was putting this, this, you know, ailing senior citizen through that? And he's got his nitroglycerin pill, so you know things are dire. Oh, yeah, I, I have to take uh, I, I take a medication in which the pills are very, very teeny tiny. And every time I, I take them, I always think of him taking a little pill box. <laughs> Just shaking, shaking, shaking. Will he get it in his mouth? Um, he also gets scared. There's a scare here, which he's almost run over by a horse-drawn coach containing one weeping woman. Well, that's again, that's another one of those, like, what the fuck's going on here? Right. Like, it's just like, you know, everything is bad. All, there, there are just so many, you know, bellwethers of bad things happening. Yeah. You know, and you've he, got to, you know, who is this? What, is she going to a funeral? Why is she crying? What's going on? How do you not hear a horse-drawn carriage coming out at you? It almost he's literally a, comes out of nowhere. And he's almost gunned down by the guards at the dig site. They come out like guns drawn, like, oh, sorry, I almost killed you, but I guess I'll let three minutes go by and death will just take you anyway. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't, you're not long for this world, Padre. It, it certainly does not look it. Uh, and then he have, has a staring contest with this statue of, what we now know is Pazuzu. And I'm not sure that Pazuzu has ever spoken. In not this in this movie. one. It's spoken a lot in Exorcist 2. But when I didn't notice uh, until now, 
and I can't tell you why, is that the statue has a giant snake for a penis. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> that feels very that feels very demonic to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's you um, I mean, you know, I, nobody told you to get you know, the high def Blu-rays, Patrick. Yeah, that that's, that's on true. you. That is. I should not have I just watched purchased I, a television I just, this large. I just rented mine on like Amazon. <laughs> I did not notice any snake penis. It's crawling up one leg, so it's not necessarily attached, but it's definitely supposed to represent his penis. Pazuzu is compensating. Um so let's talk a little bit more about uh, our favorite 70 single mom, Chris McNeil. And like a pack of Virginia Slims, she's come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that she's never gone away. You know what I mean? Well, person. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. So many people from the 70s were kind of like stuck in that era in their prime and it took a while for people to appreciate them. I always feel like Ellen Burstyn is an actress that tons of people are like, oh, no, you know what we need? Ellen Burstyn. And I just don't know that there's a ton of Ellen Burstyn's walking around right now. She's as unique as any of those great 70s movie stars. You can't say, like, the reason that she's on there is, like, pure sex appeal. <laughs> Nor... Can you say she's just a nobody from Hicksville? She's just a very unique, real presence in everything. Right. I was going to say she she feels very, even though she's a, 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 a you know a presumably pretty famous movie actor. I mean, she is on a cover of like a gossip magazine in one scene yeah. with her mm-hmm. daughter for some reason, which is weird. Yeah. But but um, soup soup soup's weird. And and you know presumably well off because she has you know, a staff in her, <laughs> in her, in her house, which none of them really seem to do much. They kind of just stand around much of the time. But, uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> she's the one wandering into the attics to see if rats are there. She's yeah. often making breakfast on her own past the I'm first I'm not entirely sure what Sharon's role in, in, in the household is. Uh, I, I assume that she was at one point, perhaps Reagan's nanny, but, 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 Reagan is maybe a little too old for a nanny at this point. She she is chronologically too old for a nanny. She's a little child. I mean, childlike. She's like twelve, but I mean, she, she's probably maybe a little immature for twelve. But also in that yeah. way that a lot of children of divorce are. Like she's she's clean with clean with her mom and and you know needing her attention and you know it's normal. It's not anything. I don't think that the movie's trying to say anything about her specifically. But and yet, and yet, I do feel that there's this vein that doesn't get talked about as much when it comes to the actresses that is a little culturally misogynistic. Like, you know, what's the reason the devil picks Reagan McNeil? And, you know, Marin's definition is, and it's it comes from the book, and it wasn't in the theatrical, and then they added it, was that she's not really the target. She's just such an innocent that her suffering makes everyone else doubt God's love. Right. Like it's, just, it's to send everybody in despair. But there is a vein a little bit like the reason Karis's mom dies is because he's not involved and he would have to be involved as a man. And the reason that, you know, Reagan might be vulnerable is that Chris is all alone and she should have a man in her life. And it's kind of like, Ew. 
It's fucking gross. I mean, do you, I that, don't think it's intentional. Your, I was going to say, is that your interpretation or do you think that that's, do you think that's what they meant? Cause I, I thought of, or I, I do see what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but also I think that Reagan is vulnerable because she's lonely. Yes. Yeah. She, I yeah. mean, she's literally playing with a, with a the Ouija board by herself, which, yeah. which that that's not how that works. <laughs> right. And it's like, um, you know, can, can Sharon take this kid somewhere? I mean, you know, does she, I mean, you know, why is this poor kid, you know, you know, hanging around killing time for herself by herself, waiting until you, you know, and I'm not saying this as a, a criticism against Chris. I mean, she is, you know, working to, you know, keep this nice house for them, but she's basically just killing time until Chris can make time to wherever they said they were going to go, go to the zoo or go to the movies or something. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and Ray is like, Oh my God, that's so wonderful. Mom, thank you for taking me to the movies. <laughs> yeah. They, they mentioned, they mentioned that she's waiting to, moved to LA because she wants Reagan to finish the school year. I'm like, we never see her go to school. Right. It's definitely, it's definitely fall because there's a scene where she walks past trick or treaters. Yeah. But we never see her get ready for school. Again, the movie doesn't have to show me everything. It's packed with, but she's never seen, uh, she's never seen anywhere, but the house and at various doctor's appointments. So she, so she's lonely and isolated. Yeah, is she being homeschooled? Like, what? what? I don't, I don't. It's a, again, it's supposed to, you know, unmoor you. Yeah, I don't think the, the, the sort of cultural misogyny angle is anything more than it's a product of its time. I don't think it's intentional at all. No, and, and she is, everybody's there. pretty respectful to her. Like, Kinderman is very respectful towards her, mm-hmm. which is, you know, interesting because he, you know, he seemed like he could become very intimidating on it, you know, you know, on a dime, but he, yeah. he, you know, he's very polite to her. He doesn't pry about what Reagan's medical condition is. You know, he just, I, I think that he knows there's something more going on there. And, and of course he does because he shows up at the end. Yeah. Um, but he is really reluctant to push her, which I, I think is good because I think, you know, in, you know, in the hands of a different director, he maybe, you know, end up coming off as, you know, a, a sort of secondary antagonist. And, yeah. and, you know, and when, you know, when you are, our dark Lord is your primary antagonist, you, right. you don't need secondary antagonists. You don't, you don't need this mustachioed uh, <laughs> match stom- uh, chomper to come off as uh, working for the devil unbeknownst to him. It's it's unnecessary. Uh, it's more world building than anything else. Let's talk about Reagan, uh, since we've kind of uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, drifted into her. Uh, what we know about Reagan from the intro is she wants a horse real bad, um, and that's it. That's her character. <laughs> She's a sad, lonely girl. Yeah, we don't get a lot of time with her as as herself. Yeah, maybe like maybe like ten minutes. But we also have to assume that by the time we meet her, it's it's already happening. Because one we, does assume that because that she yeah but, because maybe like the second or third time we see her, she's she's saying, "Oh look, my friend, Captain Howdy." Yeah, and the bed is shaking so violently at night she can't sleep there. So, like, whether or not it's made its way inside or it's just like poking at her defenses, whatever they might be, you have to believe that from the word go, she's at least under the influence of the daily. Yeah. Um, and then you are, we're remiss to say that, you know, Reagan McNeil is essentially 
a built performance. It's absolutely centered in Linda Blair, but then you have the stunt performer who's doing a lot of the work that a minor just simply cannot and should not be doing. And then you have Mercedes McCambridge, a woman who said, in order to do this, I have been sober for many years now. I'm going to have to start smoking and drinking again in order to make this And eat raw eggs. <laughs> and have a priest around so that we can consult after every single take. I mean, I have to imagine that some of the, some of the stuff she said, it's just like exhausting. Like, like, yeah. Constantly telling people to have sex with one another or to lick her. It's just all of it is just meant to poke prod, make people uncomfortable. And, you know, it's it, the amalgamation of the makeup, the central performance, the stunt performance, the voice performance. You're creating something no one person, I think, can accomplish. That's not to take away from any of those pieces. They're all collaborating in, to make this one amazing character that honestly you couldn't replicate if you tried and guess what everybody they're about to try uh, one one thing before we go on <laughs> move on to the next character is uh i recently watched i think that might have been what inspired me to, to watch the movie again um mm-hmm. a documentary that's currently on shutter uh in which it's mostly talking to william friedkin about his thoughts on faith and what he put into making the exorcist and mm-hmm. there are some uh behind the scenes clips and it shows Linda Blair filming these scenes and just doing the stuff that she says in character as, as possessed Reagan in her own voice. Yeah. And then it's, and then it's, it was later saying the Cambridge's voice was later dubbed into it. And it's just sort of amusing in a horrifying <laughs> way. It's like, I don't, it's, I don't know if you guys may be taking the veil back too much. Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard your kid accidentally or on purposely you curse and you weren't supposed to hear it. it it's, it's funny, but also like, geez, no, <laughs> I'm not ready to hear you sound like a little adult. Yeah. And you know, by all accounts, and she's the first one to say it, like they tried everything they could to retain her innocence throughout this. Like they were really trying not to make this the uh, a terrible choice in her life yeah and i mean for all of freaking faults as a director he seemed to be pretty good with her from what i understand yes. and and i i'm fairly certain that linda blair you, you know only, only looks back on it as a positive experience and, and i feel like that you know this far removed at this point if she turned as it turned out she did not actually have a good time with it she would have said so by now yeah, I think just the the one uh, sort of lingering back issue seems to be a lot of it. And I don't think she had a particular, it seems to me that her desires are more closely aligned with the early Reagan McNeil. She just wanted to have a horse. Um, she has a animal rescue and her life is infinitely more dedicated to that. Every once in a while she's called into duty and I think she takes it so that she can pour that money back into her true passions. Um, so uh, when it comes to uh, child actors, I don't think she fell as hard as some. But let's we would be remiss if we did not uh, talk about the drama surrounding Father Karras, Damien Karras. Originally, Warner Brothers approached Jack Nicholson, who turned this down, 
I um, wow. <laughs> I can't wow. even imagine. I think that, but I have to believe that when anyone saw a script in 1973, they probably said, I wonder what Jack Nicholson is doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't put thought into it. They were like, get me a movie star. Because after Nicholson, you have Paul Newman being reached out to. And he's like, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not a, a young, hot priest. I'm Paul fucking Newman. Uh, so then after going through a bunch of auditions, they sign Stacy Keach, who's an interesting choice. I don't think it would have been the worst one. If you want a sort of, uh, a view of what Stacy Keach might've been liked, like in this role, William Peter Blatty ended up directing a movie called the ninth configuration. Um, as far as I know, it is still on shutter. If you haven't seen it, it is well worth a look. It is a very different film than The Exorcist. But I think you would see what Stacy might have put into this role. I don't think it, the film would have suffered overall, but it's hard to get better than Jason Miller in this particular role. Yeah, I he was more known as a writer than an actor. Um, yeah, he pretty much got cast off of, he had written a play called That Championship Season, and Friedkin sees that and basically goes backstage, hands him the paperback of the exorcist and said, you should read this. And then there's this, all this rigmarole of getting Stacy Keach out and Jason Miller in. And eventually it happens, but not without, you know, paying Stacy Keach off entirely. And uh, I think William Peter Blatty was more in the Stacy Keach camp. But you cannot deny the performance that is given here by Jason Miller. Oh no! I yeah, he is you know kind of the the, the anchor of of the movie here. Uh, he he's I would say he's a co protagonist with 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 Chris. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I just feel that the the relationship with the mother, who is clearly not American born, gives a different a different element to it. And, you know, I, I don't know that would have worked with, with, with Stacy Keach because Stacy Keach looks like he was like, you know, you know, born from people who settled Texas. You know, he, right. he does exactly. not, he does not, I wouldn't have bought him as the son of a little, you know, little shriveled up, you know, Greek woman. Exactly. Yes. I mean, now um, to be fair, they might not have cast the same actress, but still, I, I feel like that element just, you know, her sad little apartment with her, oh you know, so her, her sad little radio. And, <laughs> and it's just like, like, it, 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 everything just kind of pulls together with him cast as Karis. I'm going to pull, um, you know, a last minute substitution. Normally we would do choose your own death venture. I'm choose your own dire apartment. <laughs> of all the apartment dire apartments we've <laughs> viewed, and I think there are two main contenders here. Which do which would you choose to live in if you were forced to, and why? Uh, Mrs. Karras's apartment in some sort of outer borough, by the looks of it, or Alice's apartment in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Oh gosh, uh, I mean, you know, my first thought would be Mrs. Karras because I got to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. This feels very much like 70s and 80s grandma apartment to me. Like, yeah, sure. like it's just, you know, where, where she's kind of like, you know, living on her pension and, and, 
you know, probably spent 50 years smoking. So everything's like this, right. everything's discolored and, and, and grimy. And, you know, maybe she doesn't get out as much as she should. And it's just, you know, bleak. And she just sitting there, you know, just waiting for it to happen. You yeah. know, I mean, and we know what it means. <laughs> you know, you, but I mean, I guess as far as just, you know, not being quite as depressing, I would have to say Alice's Alice's apartment. I mean, at least she can, yeah. at least she has room to paint. You know, True. you know, all, she has room all for her art. Yeah, all Mrs. Carrot does is sit there and listen to some sort of Greek radio program. <laughs> and you have to believe that that rocking chair is basically molded to her butt at this point. <laughs> oh yeah, like she's sleeping in it. That oh my god. The only thing that Mrs. Karras's apartment obviously has is that she's closer to a train. She can get in and out of the city if she wants, if, if her leg will allow her to get down the stairs. Whereas we don't know where Alice lives. It, it could be anywhere. It's in another world. I, I just assume it's like somewhere. ruled by ponds. I, I was going to say, I said somewhere in like the central Jersey suburbs. You know, you're closer to a decent hoagie where Alice is. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Ah oh, man, it's a, it's a, but then, then you have to have cinder block furniture. It's real tough. But also she's a college, she's like college age. So, I mean, that, that's not, that's not too bad for a college age individual yeah. that this is like, you know, this is the end of Mrs. Karras's life. This is all she has. <laughs> sure. Very, very, very true. She's kind of got a shitty brother. I, I think that guy's real shitty. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's putting it all on Damien, even though he's the one that lives closer to her. So yes, like, why are you a priest? Like, if you were a real psychologist, like you could have your mother living anywhere. It's like that's not helping, asshole. That's not helping at all. Just another quick reference here for those who remember the prophecy and a beginning in the quote unquote ghetto, and then watch that, and then watch that the sequence with Karis. Now you'll see what's a set and what's real because here. It looks like straight out, like you think the 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 wolves from uh, Wolfen are about to <laughs> crawl around the corner at any possible second. It is very real. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 is pretty uh, pretty indicative of, of of New York in the seventies. Captain Howdy, very rude about working actresses' looks, or just a realist? <laughs> I think he's just rude in general. <laughs> Um, Burke Dennings, um, he probably won't end up being your new dad, no matter how much you just want to mail presents around. He's very into outing the help as Nazis. He's a rude drunk and he ends up getting tossed from a third story window and down several flights of stone steps. And I'm not mad about it. No, no. I, I think that probably better him than, than, than Sharon as useless as Sharon is. Uh, you have the butler, Carl, and he doesn't believe it's rats. That's Carl. You got Mrs. Carl. <laughs> Mrs. Carl, who knows how to fry an egg. We don't really learn much about her other than the fact she did not put that crucifix under Reagan's pillow. That's about what we get from her. And the spinal tap in this thing really freaks me out. And like I've always said, spinal tap first, puppet show second. <laughs> um, maybe again, you want the puppet. That is a great joke if you have a Google window open. Maybe, to maybe, get if you, that maybe you want the puppet show first in this, <laughs> in this case. But yeah, like I said uh, before, they 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 amp up the medical stuff a lot in the uh, in the the, the 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 newly edited version. Absolutely true, and of course, there's the fact that the guy who's the helper there it ended up being a convicted murderer. 
Um, which 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 uh, William Friedkin turned around and used in Cruising, a, yeah. a a movie we will probably never talk about. Um, I don't know that it's our movie to talk no. about. Let's put it that yes. way. Uh, I definitely suggest people go out and and watch it. Uh, there's a great Blu-ray of it right now. It, the it, it looks great. It is fucking wild. It is worth seeking out. I'm not sure it ever should have been made, but it was made, and that means you should probably. And, and you could hear you could hear Al Pacino describe himself as fun sized, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he's small hip. I get it. You know? <laughs> When he pumps iron in that movie, I'm telling you, people should watch it. Okay? It is an interesting movie. I, I don't want to say yeah. good or bad because it's not really my call to make. Um, right. yes. It's interesting, though. And daring for its time. But, of course, daring from the standpoint of almost everyone involved with it was a straight male. So <laughs> I did enjoy this time watching it and seeing how cool and calm Marin is during an exorcism it's like because he's done it he's done this before yeah he looks like dom toretto in the middle of a car race (laughs) i've seen all this before he just for him you know holy water is just his nos when you think about it so do we think um that when we don't actually see marin die we just uh Karis discovers his body and he's presumably had a heart attack. His heart has finally given out. But do we think that's just exhaustion or do we think that it was some, that the devil kind of, you know, stopped his heart? I mean, he's clinging onto life from the first frame. I I don't, he, he obviously has the experience to do this, but his body is failing him and he is, pouring his last moments of life into trying to make this exorcism happen. So I don't know that it takes direct supernatural malfeasance for him to keel over. Like, like he like, almost keels over the scene before. Like a, you know like, a I mean? like a draft, a, a draft could take him out. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's hard for him to stand up from sitting down on the stairs. Like the, if he had killed over there, I also wouldn't have blamed him. Like he's given everything he's totally got. So you think it's just, you think it was just a, a, a natural occurrence then? I think the devil wore him down is my charitable reading of it. I mean, I think you could kind of, you know, describe, you know, the past year and a half as just the devil is wearing us down. <laughs> yeah. We're so. all we're all just frantically, shakily taking our tiny pills. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm taking uh, ivermectin um, from uh, the gel form. You got I'm that? Squirting it into my mouth. You, you're not just you're putting it on crackers as, as a, a tasty <laughs> snack. Get- Direct in the tongue, swishing it around with a little water or Mountain Dew, my preferred beverage of choice. Getting yeah. that horse paste. <laughs> That's right. If it's good enough for sheep. It should be good enough for, for you, sheeple. Um, that's what I always said. Now, fucking, please, God damn it, wear a mask. I don't want to do it anymore either. Get to, I'm wearing a mask. Get your goddamn shots already. What the fuck? I have to believe everyone in this audience, unless directly ordered by their doctor not to do so for distinct health reasons, like their immune system is simply shot, that they have taken 
the very preventable measures to avoid COVID-19. But if you have not, and you have waited until now for me, a complete doofus, to tell you this, please do so before you get COVID and your insurance company says, we're not going to pay for that because you could have taken a free shot and you chose not to beyond your health and safety and those around you. Just do it. Uh, I needed a drink after that. For fuck's sake, please, people. I, I don't want to rent rent out movie theaters simply so my kid can see Shang-Chi for every Marvel movie. Okay, Let, let's move past this. Um, uh, anything else that we've missed along the way? I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it could do a scene by scene breakdown uh, of yes. it and just it, and how it, it is influenced so many movies that came after it and, and how it's the stuff of nightmares and and. It, it, again, like you could even just you, you don't even have to like you could watch this movie with your eyes closed, and and, and just the noises and, and and the voices and the sound design and the music are are just going to be still be a a full horrifying sensory experience. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it's an incredible motion picture. Um, any chance you have to see it with a group, I would totally suggest it. If you have to see it at home, you know, keep your phone in the other room. Really allow it to work its magic. That's the way it's going to work the best. Um, and, you know, if, if the devil's just something you've never, ever believed in, I think there's enough creep factor in this motion picture that just, I, I have to believe it will work on most people. I just have to believe that. And if, you, if it doesn't, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> keep it to yourself exactly the kill by kill do, motto do, yeah if you don't like it don't tell me don't 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 bust my balls about this okay just don't <laughs> so where can people bust your balls on these here internets i mean there's always twitter <laughs> <laughs> you know the number the number one spot to bust people's balls all the time <laughs> as much as possible yeah um porcelain 72 porcelain uh, 72 like kill pod um, and we have the t-shirt store, uh, is still in operation. We're still working on murderstab.biz. Uh, hopefully that'll be up there sooner rather than later. we got fun stuff coming up next week, everybody, when you're done, uh, rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Uh, you know what you're going to want to do? Uh, you're going to want to check out Candyman because guess what? We're going to talk Candyman. Uh, come hell or high water, we've both purchased tickets and our every intention is to go see Candyman and talk about it. And that's what we'll be talking about next week. So if you were looking for Dish by Dish, that will be postponed by one week um, because of timeliness. Uh, so our apologies to our Dish by Dish listeners, but uh, Candyman is something we've been waiting to watch for two years now and we fucking want to see it already. Uh, so we're going to do it. Uh, and if you have not rated and reviewed on iTunes, please do so, or any of your podcatchers that allow reviews. Uh, it helps us be seen and heard by more people. Uh, that just about does it. Until next time, for myself and Virginia, the body count will continue. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.